Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was the John Williams Syndicate with Amber Provero. Never want to be without you. That's because I've got the huge privilege today to welcome John Williams on the Strange Brew Podcast, a record producer and songwriter of highly acclaimed note, and we'll be hearing just a fraction of those highlights on the show today. As always, a huge welcome, John. Very nice to be here with you, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure, and it's great to bookend with your material in on the show, as well as in the middle of that, we've got a lot of the material that you've either wrote or artists that you've recorded with. We started with a relatively recent track from your last solo album, Out of Darkness, which has got a bit of a Fleetwood Mac theme, I think, but is that the sort of thing you were aiming for? Well, it's odd that you say that because several people have said the same thing. And I had to listen to Rumours for the first time the other day. So, I mean, I didn't have to listen to it, but somehow it had escaped me. I was very familiar with the, oh, well, early Fleetwood Mac. And after the third person said to me, this sounds like Fleetwood Mac, I I did investigate. And um, it's a beautiful song. And I came across Amber Prothero through Paul Heaton, who had been on Pointless, the TV quiz show with Jackie Abbott. And John Barnes was also on the, the show and said to Paul that he knew someone who lived near Chester who had a daughter who was a good singer, and could he send the recording to him? It wasn't his cup of tea, but he forwarded it to me, and I thought she'd be great to sing on this song, which is more of a Nick Drake kind of feel. I, I thought this is probably me inventing how I imagine Nick Drake would sound if he was still making records today. And it has that familiar hammer-on, hammer-off guitar motif and lots of heavy layering. Amber sings it beautifully. It was the album I made in lockdown after I'd finished making the fourth Paul Heaton and Jackie Abbott album, Manchester Calling. And the week that that went to number one, lockdown happened. So that's when I started writing all this stuff for Out of Darkness. On that record, you collaborated with a lot of other artists and, and vocalists as well. So it was a, it showcased not only your songwriting, but a range of uh, vocals as well as your own on that. Yes, I was lucky to have people like Claudia Bruken from Propaganda, Petula Clark, Isabella Colstock, and Slicko DiCaprio, and, and I sang it myself. You're currently working on new material, which will, will come to the end of the show, but... Um... You've got an amazing backstory, which goes way back and, and really tracks music of the last 50 years or so. Maybe it's worth touching on how you got into music, because you've been involved in music from almost every single angle, from journalism, production, A&R. Well, the early 70s, I was at University of Canada, um, the University of Western Ontario, where I went to do a journalism and English degree. And it was there in Canada that I started playing the local coffee house circuit as a singer-songwriter with my 12-string echo guitar and play my own songs. But I played some Georges Moustaki, who was a French singer that I'd been impressed with when I went to university in France before that. Played Nick Drake's songs, played cover of Summertime done by the Zombies. And I got used to playing this gig at the university every Sunday night for about four years. And I thought that what I wanted to be was a a songwriter. So when I graduated, I wrote letters to lots of record companies in in England and magazines and radio stations. And I got three replies, one from Sounds magazine, one from Richard Branson, 
and one from John Frew in Apollodor. And I met them all, and it seemed like the Apollodor idea was the best because Richard Branson wanted me to manage Kevin Coyne, who I didn't really like, and I knew nothing about management. And John Fruin promised graduate training scheme through Polydor, and um, I thought that was the one to do. So I became the East East Midlands promo rep for Polydor in 1974 with my Ford Cortina. My patch was Leicester, Nottingham, Derby, and Stoke, and Ipswich, and Norwich. So I went to see Sale of the Century in Norwich, and... My first meeting in the business was Radio Nottingham with Trevor Dan, who went on to big things himself. He produced Live Aid, was the head of Radio London and a Radio 2, Radio 1 producer, and is still a friend to this day. And wrote a very good book on on Nick Drake, who will come across his name several times during this chat. He went to Cambridge and asked for Nick Drake's room at um, Fitzwilliam College, and uh, he got it. So we had a mutual interest in Nick Drake right from the start. So um, I've been in the record business since 1974. I've always had a recording setup wherever I've lived. So I had a, a TIAC four track when I was in my East Midlands promo rep days. And I now have a recording studio at the bottom of my garden, which is just a shed, 10 foot by 12 foot shed, but I've got all the right gear in it and you can make records. So our next track is Blamange Living on the Ceiling, a huge hit in uh, about 1982. In the years running up to that, you'd released some material of your own. And then how did you get involved with Blamange? I had made some records for Mickey Most at Rack Records. I'd signed under the name East Side Band. And we'd had one single out, which was a Kid Jensen record of the week on Radio 1 called Rendezvous. It was all over the radio for about six weeks. And I was even thinking of visiting car showrooms, showrooms to see what <laughs> I might buy from the proceeds of this. But sadly, it never never sold. And I got dropped. And I started producing. I was invited by a very good producer, Radio 2, who I, Radio 1, called Stuart Grundy, uh, who was in charge of live sessions. And he noted that I'd been a plugger and then had had a recording career, so I knew how studio worked. And he invited me to be a Radio 1 session producer which I did for the next four or five years. And it was whilst I was doing that that I came across Blamange. A friend of mine who I went to school with, Paul Smith, had come across them and asked me to come and get a second opinion. And I thought they were great. They were supporting Japan. And um, they had some really great songs. Had a, and Neil Arthur had a great stage presence. So Paul and I decided that we, we would manage them. And I was the Blamange manager from... 81 through 85, during which time I produced about 60 Radio 1 live sessions. And Living on the Ceiling was from the, the first album, Happy Families, which Mike Howlett produced. And he made a really great recording, but we all felt that it could do with something extra. And at London Records, where we were signed, was in the same building as same Polygram building as, as um, Phonogram and Polydor. And the phonogram had had a hit with Monsoon, which had got some Indian players on it. So someone suggested, why don't we get some tablas on the track? So we went in the studio with a guy called Dennis Weinrich, and I produced the session. And we redid the vocals, put live drums on it with a guy called Jamie Lane, who was in a band called The Movies, who were like a British Little Feet. And we got a guy called Pandit Dinesh on tablas and Deepak on sitar. 
And we did all of this in about, we started till three in the afternoon and finished at eight the next morning, having mixed the whole thing, had gone 48 track and come out with this absolutely amazing track, which was still sounds unbelievable today. And um, we went to Cairo to make a video. I went with a guy called Andy McConnell, who is the glass expert now on Antiques Roadshow. And he and I went to the, the um, Egyptian embassy and blagged free air flights and tickets and hotels. And the video cost about eight grand. This was in the time of when Duran Duran were making videos, things like Rio, which cost you know, a quarter of a million dollars. And anyway, the, the living on the ceiling video shot in Cairo is well worth a, a look at because it's a really brilliant, brilliant little film. And it got to number seven. Yes, you're right. Um, 1982, Christmas 82. And um, we all celebrated by going skiing. And I broke my leg the first after, first afternoon on the slopes.
It seemed like an incredibly productive time for you. So as you say, you were involved with Blamange, and at the same time you were then also doing BBC radio recording sessions. So between 81 and 85, I was <clears throat> I did sessions for Kid Jensen, John Peel, Peter Powell, Bruno Brooks, Janice Long, Friday Night Rock Show, and I would ring up, Stuart Granny would ring me up and say, are you available for these dates? And I'd say yes. And he said, well, you've got The Cure, Simple Minds, Big Country, and Aswad. It would blow my mind. These sessions would start at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and go on till 11 o'clock at night. And in that time, you had to produce, record, and mix four tracks for radio broadcast. Now, this really showed me how you could make records quickly if you were organized and the band were rehearsed. So, you know, I had a fantastic time. And these sessions were done at Made Avail Studios, uh, the Langham in the hotel in Portland Place, and Golders Green Hippodrome. And uh, I still used to go between the, the three of those. But um, there's some fantastic sessions. Fantastic. Just really epic. A lot of range of different styles um, and personalities of the bands and, and approaches. How did you respond as the, the producer to that? I, I guess you couldn't do that much preparation, could you? Well, there's no preparation at all because you had no idea what they were going to perform. Wow. But the first thing I would do was was introduce myself to the band and say, I want to, you know, we're going to have some fun today. This is going to be really enjoyable and I'm really keen to make sure that you, you're happy and that you've got the right setup and you, you're going to have fun doing this as well. I would then find out what the recording setup was and how many guitar overdubs do you want to do? How many vocal harmonies are there? So I could get a picture of what they were trying to achieve. And um, there were some great BBC engineers who would have made great record engineers. There was a guy called Mike Robinson, who, who was the quickest guy you'd ever seen get an incredible drum sound. And one of these sessions was, um, we want to talk about the Waterboys and Medicine Bow which was, was started a relationship with Mike Scott, which actually I don't work with him anymore, but I, I have worked with him over the years a lot. And we first met at the Golders Green Hippodrome in 1983, I think it was, when we were booked to do a session and the drummer didn't turn up for the session. So Golders Green Hippodrome was this big, huge theatre with two boxes either side of the, the, the stalls. There were only three people there, Mike Scott, a trumpet player and a violin player drummer and the bass player hadn't hadn't arrived so we did don't bang the drum and this is the c with the one trumpet player in one box and the violinist in the other box and mike scott on stage with a piano and voice and i tell you that he started singing and the hairs down the back my stood up and this is spine tingling stuff what a great performer he is eventually the the drummer turned up and everyone was really fired up and we didn't have much time we had one take to do it and Medicine Bow emerged. And we heard it back, and it was a bit like, wow, this is better than the record. And it was, but the album had already come out. But this came out as a single in Australia and New Zealand and Europe. And it wasn't a hit, but it's certainly a dynamic record. Absolutely incredible.
There was one other record that came out that was thought by the record company to be as good or better than the record, which was Simple Minds and Promised You a Miracle, which they didn't come out in the end. But that we, I had the B-sides with King is White and another track, which both were on the 25 Years Silver Box set of Simple Minds. But often when the band was fired up, they already knew the song, they had recorded it, and they had a certain an, another energy level to it. So this is why some of these BBC sessions are as good as the record, if not better sometimes, because it's all down to performance. There's something about knowing that, unlike when you're recording an album, you don't really have much chance to to fluff your lines. So you've got that adrenaline of having to make that very limited opportunity count. That's quite right. And I mean, the job, one of the jobs of a producer is to use the time allotted to make the product that they want to make. So if you've got a day to do it, you'll do it in a day. If you've got two months to do it, then you you set an, a different kind of target and time schedule. That's not to say you slack around, but there's a different intensity in, in, in involves making a Paul Heath and Jackie Abbott album is a different kettle of fish to doing a live session, but a lot of the principles still adhere. Promise to
mentioned Paul Heaton. Am I right that you first worked with Paul and the House Martins and that that was through a BBC radio session then? It was through a Janice Long session, and which is a BBC Radio 1 live session. And one of the songs we did was called Anxious. And I remember thinking, wow, this band's really great. And thought no more about it other than we all had a good, had a fun time. We had a few laughs. And um, this was my last session before I'd been offered a job working at Chrysalis Records as a senior A&R manager, which which was really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a band manager anymore. And the dream of being a BBC Radio 1 live session producer was that one day a band would walk through the studios and say, I would love you to make records with us, which never happened. It happened to Gakko Bob Sargent, who was my predecessor with Haircut 100. But it turned out that the House Martins were signed to Go Discs, which was distributed and marketed through Chrysalis. So I was working at Chrysalis after the session and Andy McDonald came to chat with me and he said, we, I spoke to the guys in the band and um, when I asked them who like, they'd like to produce the record, they said, well, John will do. And he came to ask me, would I be able to do it as an A&R man? So I went to see Stuart Slater, who was my boss, who said, well, if you come into the office in the mornings, you can go to the studio in the afternoon or for 12 o'clock and do an all day session, but come in and do your day work in the morning. So that was how I, I made the album. I used to go to the Chrysalis building in the morning, do my A&R duties, and then drive over to the Shoreditch, the Strongroom Studios, where Phil Bodger, my engineer, was ready to welcome me in the band. And we made London Nil Hull 4 at the Strongroom in 1985 or 6. And um, Flag Day is one of the greatest records I've ever been involved in making. It is still it is a spectacular feat of engineering and production it's it's i mean it's basically it's a live recording with some incredible double tracking on vocal harmonies trying to sound like gospel singers not trying to they're succeeding in sounding like gospel singers and um an incredible pianist called pete wingfield who was in a band called the olympic runners and had had a hit with 18 with a bullet and i had met him a few times and thought, well, if I ever need a piano player, he's the man. <laughs> and he was the man. He plays the most beautiful piano on this track. And it was also the track which, when I first heard the the, the original single produced by a guy called Jeffrey Wood, which is good, but not as great as this. The opening lines of the song, Too Many Florence Nightingales, Not Enough Robin Hoods. I thought, now there's a lyricist. And, of course, Paul Heaton was a genius lyricist right from the get-go and still is. 
still one of the greatest writers this nation has ever produced, in my opinion. And a huge success as well. And that you continued working with Paul and the House Martins. So I made two albums. Well, I only made two albums. I made London Hill Hell Ford, Shoreditch, the Strongham Studios and Shoreditch. And the second album, The People Who Grin Themselves to Death, they didn't want to be in London. So we picked somewhere midway between them and us. But Stockport really wasn't midway, but they lived in Hull. So we booked a motel in Stockport and we, we recorded People Grin Themselves to Death at Yellow 2 Studios, which had a, a Mitsubishi 32-track digital recorder, which we, no one had ever seen before. And we Phil Bodger was the same engineer on the recordings. And we all stayed at the Bramall Lane Motorhouse. And they had a new drummer, Dave Hemingway, because the original drummer had left. Really great album, actually. People Grin Themselves to Death. It's got Bow Down. And Pete Wingfield plays on this record again. Build is on it. Me and the Farmer. Five Get Overexcited. Yeah, just brilliant, brilliant record. And now it's the, the last House Martin's album. And after that, I left Chrysalis because I'd been invited to become head of A&R Polydor, which I thought was a pretty good way of going back, having started as the East, East Midlands promo rep, <laughs> to go back 13 years later as the director of A&R. Seems like a good idea to me. And I had a, an interesting time. It's always the time. 
mentioned earlier about Chrysalis Senior A&R, and we've got the Proclaimers and their album, This Is Their Story, in the track, Throw The R Away. How did your path cross with the Proclaimers and what was your involvement with them? Well, so my involvement with the Proclaimers was I signed them and produced the debut album, This Is The Story. I first came across them when I was in the studio in Stockport with the House Martins. They had been sent a tape by a Proclaimers fan who, this is called The Red Tape, um, who was trying to drive interest in, in his favourite band and it didn't have a phone number on it. So the House Martins had, had gone, were on the Janice Long show like a round table show, and they put out a request on it. If anybody knew who the Proclaimers were, to give them a call because they wanted them to support them on their next British tour. So that's how I got in touch with the, the, the Proclaimers. And we all watched them on the tube together from the studio when they when they played Letter from America, which brought the house down. They were extraordinary. So I got in touch with Kenny McDonald, the manager, and said that who I was, told him who I was, and that I thought I could really make a great album for them. And quickly, we could get something out to work on the, the heat that they'd already started burning up for themselves. So I went to see them play in, in Hull. Then I got them to come down to London to perform in front of the Chrysler's team of people in the boardroom. Uh, they'd never been to on an aeroplane before. Yeah. I'm not sure they'd even been to London. So they, they performed in front of the boardroom. We signed them the next day and... The following week, I took them into the Strongroom Studios, and within 10 days, we'd, we'd finished the album. And Throw the R Away is the opening song on this is the story. And my reference points on, on this record were two acts. One was the Kingston Trio, who were a American folk band who were huge in, in, the, in the 50s and early 60s, where have all the flowers gone? And um, they had an acoustic bass player who played a, a four-string guitar-type bass. So we hired one of these in, and they added this to the, the track. And we got a really big sound and um, recorded this at the Strong Room again with Phil Bodger, my old pal. And um, a lot of people had said to them, oh, you can't sing in a Scottish accent. But I never mentioned this, and th I thought they, they were just authentic. I thought, what a great soul singer that Craig was. And he's got the most extraordinary voice. When I, when I first got to the studio, they were warming their voices up, which I thought was a good thing. But they did this for an hour. <laughs> they would hold notes, you know, ah, and it was incredible. And then they said, we're ready now. And uh, we had a, a lot of fun recording songs that they had already recorded before, so they, they knew them. There's an extra sparkle to, the, to this, this album, and it still sounds fantastic today. And this track is one of my favourite songs of theirs. So it seems the years of groundwork that you had working on the BBC radio material was just the perfect grounding for this sort of situation where you were used to acts that had rehearsed their material and that you were able to bring the best out of the artists when it came to making that recording. That's right, making them feel at ease and making them feel they could perform. And, and my job was to get them to perform and then say, yes, that is the performance. We don't need to do any more takes because we've got it. And being a set of ears, being a listener, being a reflector, being a mirror for them and not saying to them, you must do this or you must do that. And it must sound like that. But, you know, the manipulation that one has, you have to be quite careful about how you use your, your power because you do, you do have the power to say, no, that's not good enough. Uh, or do that again. A producer is hired to make, produce a record. And that's what I did. And it came out and went top 40 and stayed in the charts all year. 
and went gold. And um, I left Chrysalis to go to Polydor. But Pete Wingfield, who played on Flag Day, produced the, the second Proclaimers album. I, I'd asked him to get involved and suggest him to Pete Robinson, who was the next day on my man after me at Chrysalis. And of course, he produced 500 Miles. And what a great owner that has been. Just extraordinary. Just a little. Just a little. <laughs> Sad since you said my accent was bad. He's worn a frown, this Caledonian clown. I'm just gonna have to learn to hesitate and make sure my words on your Saturdays don't fade. But I wouldn't know a single word they say if I found all the balls and I threw the out away. Some days I stand on new green and pleasant land. How dare I show face? When my diction is such a disgrace I'm just gonna have to learn to hesitate To make sure my words on these accidents don't pay But I wouldn't know a single word they say If I flattened all the balls and I threw the art away You say that if I wanna get ahead The language of you should be left for dead It doesn't please Urea That's the pity that you do To be understood by you Perhaps for some money I could talk like I'd be dripping honey I'm just gonna have to learn to hesitate To make sure my words on these assassinates don't play But I wouldn't know a single word they say If I'm not know the ball, let it through the other way You say that if I wanna get ahead The language of you should be left at dead It doesn't please you, yeah Just refuse to hear He's been so sad Cause you said his accent was bad He's worn a throne This Californian clown I'm just gonna have to learn to hesitate To make sure my words on this accent is okay But I wouldn't know a single word to say If I find all the balls and I threw the other way Next, we've got another uh, a shift in sound, and we've got Kingmaker, 10 Years Asleep, from their album Sleepwalking. This is a bit more on the sort of indie spectrum, but for me, it's got a bit of a rockabilly edge as well. Kingmaker from Hull, again, is that just a coincidence? That was just a mere coincidence, but I did think I might be awarded the keys to the city for having discovered the, the second hit band from Hull. So Lars Hardy, who was the singer and guitarist and writer of the band, was a really talented guy, really talented. And I was recommended them by my scouts at Chrysalis. I went to see them play, and they had a, a very charming manager, a guy called Charlie Gladstone, who became a good friend and still is a good friend. And um, the band wanted to record at the Clash studio, which was Wessex, which um, luckily Chrysalis owned. So we went down to Wessex. 
And Glenn Skinner, who was really great engineer producer, engineered the sessions. I got James Taylor from the James Taylor Quartet to play Hammond and piano on it. And I do the hand claps with the band. But it's got a really, really great vibe. And you're right, it has got it has got a slight rockabilly feel to it. But it's got it's kind of rock and roll, rockabilly, indie. But it's it's got I put a, a pop sheen on it as well. They were on top of the pops, I think. I think we went top twenty. I think got to about fourteen or something in the charts. And they had one other hit, Queen Jane, which I produced. And then the band split up. But it, great record, great great record. It seems a bit of a shame because I was a teenager at the time and a huge buzz about the band. I think. Uh, Groups like Radiohead and Suede were supporting them. And for me, there's not many bands that release material that people get excited with when you hear a track like that. And they are one of those bands. So it it seems unfortunate that they weren't able to sort of continue reading that there's sort of conflict between them and the label. But I, I don't know if any of that is correct. I read the same thing recently, Jason. And all I can think of was that this was in the day of formats when you'd release a 12-inch which had extra bonus tracks on it. So you'd record you'd record them live, get extra, extra bonus tracks that way. Or you'd say to the band, write some more material, we, we, we can use it. And I think Lars Hardy was conflicted or half him wanted to be a star and half him rejected it. And yes, I mean, it's easy to blame the record label, but actually all we did was support them and, and help them. He was his own worst enemy in, in a sense. Very talented man and very sad because you're right, they were at the forefront of Britpop. There's Blur, Oasis and Kingmaker. And it's a bit like I got the wrong one. Although, yeah, they, we made a great EP called um, Armchair Anarchist, which is is worth hearing as well. Anyway, they were a great band and uh, I, I, I loved them. And um, I think they're all still well.
got uh debbie harry and uh, standing in my way from her album deprivation so was it the chrysalis link that got you involved with uh debbie harry yes i was back at chrysalis 93 having done three years at polydor and i was back there in ni- 1990 and debbie harry was signed as a solo artist and she had a contractual album to make for us so i flew out to new york to meet her at the russian tea rooms and uh she was a just delightful lady what a great woman and a great singer, better singer than I possibly imagined. And um, she wanted to make this album, and Chris Stein wrote some of the tracks, but he hadn't been very well, and she had nursed him back to health, and they weren't together as a, as a couple anymore. So it's it's a multi-producer album. John Astley produced track, Guy Pratt produced track, and Dudley produced, produced a track, and I produced a track. I produced this track, Standing in, in My Way, which is... I proudly say to people, I have sung on record with Debbie Harry because I was in the studio. We we, we cut this record at, at Air Studio 2 with her live band. We were doing overdubs, vocal overdubs, and I said to her, well, you, how about putting a third harmony on the chorus? She said, well, come and sing it with me. So I did, and I mean, it's not very loud in the mix, uh, but I am on record with her singing Standing in My Way. <laughs> which is a great thing. And she's just charming lady. Loved her. This track sounds really like a Blondie outtake. Well, I'm glad it does because that was the intention. The idea was to, I think I thought, make a, a hit record 10 years later sounding like Blondie. But it's, it's, the song is not quite as robust as that. I listened to a lot of Blondie records and tried to work out what it was that unified them. It, it wasn't one thing particular, but the Farfisa kind of organ does give it that feel as well. It was the intention it would sound like a Blondie record.
And now we've got an artist that features quite heavily latterly in your musical journey, and that's Petula Clark and Cut Copy Me from Lost in You from about a decade ago. And a phase over the last 20 years where she's continued to release excellent material and you've been a huge part of it. So you first met or were involved with Petula on a, was it a best of our greatest hits about 20 years ago? That's right, Jason. At this stage in my career in the 1990s, um, I was senior vice president of A&R for Sanctuary Records, which was a label formed out of the, the structure of the Iron Main Management Company. And we bought a company called Castle Communications, which owned the Pie Records catalogue and entire hit, hit range of Petula Clark's material. So two or three of us went to have lunch with Petula and Claude, her husband, and she said, well, I, I'm so fed up with doing compilations, but yes, all right, I'll do one, but as long as I can record some new material. So we did some new material, and I was her A&R man, and I produced a song and got some new tracks done as well. But she really wanted to make a new album, which Sanctuary didn't want to do. So we put out this, this hits album, which went top 20, and she and I became quite good friends, and I said to her, well, if any day I find the opportunity of helping you make a record, I'd love to do it. Rolled forward the clock a few years. She is signed to Sony in France to make a French album. And I had, by this stage, left Chrysalis and was working independently and had built my little studio at the bottom of my garden and had been writing with various people, including Sarah Nagshini and Paul Visser, who I'd come across whilst I'd been running Amazing Music, which is a at radio station out of Gateshead. We were a songwriting team, and Sarah came in with this idea for Cut Copy Me. I came up with the Nick Drake hammer-on, hammer-off style guitar, which lines the track, which gives it this real atmosphere. And we did a demo of it. I played it to Petula. She said, I love this. I want to put it on my French album. So we put it on the French album, and the Sony UK crowd were at the sales conference in France, and they heard this track and they thought it was the new Lana Del Rey single. So on their way back, they called me from the airport and they said, would I make an album for them? Five new songs and five covers. So Cut Copy Me, we mixed it again and it became one of the standout tracks on the Lost in You album, which I was heartened to find that when Petula turned 90 last week in the the notices about people's birthdays, in the, in the Times they put Petula Clark downtown, 1965, and Lost in You, 2013, as the highlights in her career. And this album, Lost in You, which is hard to find these days, is an absolute piece of genius piece of work. She is one of the greatest singers I've ever come across. Cut Copy Me, even around that period, was critically acclaimed, wasn't it? It was, yes, it was Time magazine, one of the top 10 singles of the year, 2013, which was which was great. It, it became a big hit in Belgium and got on the Radio 2 playlist. And the album charted at... 23, which I think was was her highest album chart positions ever. I don't think she really sold albums. I think she was a hit singles person.
So next we have Claudia Bruken and Day is Done. How far back does your involvement with Claudia go? Well, it, it goes back to 2013 when a friend of mine, Peter Price, who was then working at William Morris Booking Agency, said to me, I think you, you need to meet Claudia because she needs your help. And I said, oh, who is Claudia? He said, well, she was in the band called Propaganda. Propaganda passed me by. And not that that want them to pass me by, but... There's only so much music you can hear. And they, of course, had Jewel and Dr. Mabuse. He's had a great album called Secret Wish. And so I met Claudia. We we had a mutual liking of Nick Drake. She wanted to make an album that sounded like Lou Reed and Velvet Underground. So I said, well, let's try and write it together. So for about three months, we'd meet up every morning, either her place or my place. And we'd craft these songs from which we wrote together for Where Else, which is the album, which is... Just beautiful piece of work. And we decided that because of our mutual love of Nick Drake, we would do one Nick Drake song. I've been playing guitar since I was 14, but never really improved. I still haven't improved that much. But I wanted to learn how to play the entire Five Leaves Left Arm, which I did. But I could never sing it at the same time, and I could not play it at the same tempo as Nick Drake, or as well as. But uh, my guitar teacher certainly could. So Yul Desai plays guitar on this doesn't sound much like the original, but it is a complete facsimile of, and we've electronically enhanced the whole shebang. So it's like a modern version of Days Done with with electronica, but it's um, it's beautiful. Claudia has got the most beautiful voice ever, and she could sing a telephone directory, and it would, it would sound sensational. So I love this track. And um, she, yes, she she is. We'll come to her again later on in the in the program. Lost and won when the day. 
next, we've got Paul Heaton and Jackie Abbott, The Good Times from NK Pop. It's the fifth album that you've done with the duo now. You're right. It's the fifth album. We did the first three very close to where you live in Castleford at the Chairworks. I lived in Castleford for over a year. I love I love this part of the world that you live in. And uh, in the last two albums, Manchester Calling and NK Pop, have both been number one records. And this is the opening track of NK Pop. And but for its lyrical content, probably would have been, would have been a single. Making a Paul Heaton album is a is a really joyous experience, but hard work and takes a long time because he re- he rehearses the band or he rehearses we all rehearse for two months in a rehearsal room before we even start playing a note so that every possible chord key tempo is worked out just in case because they've got to fit both Paul and Jack's voices and some keys don't always work for both of them and this is one of the I love this track this it's a real test because it's, it's like a rock and roll start and then it goes into a scar chorus. Then it has a trombone solo at the end of it. And um, but it's a beautiful track and just one of the the many styles of Paul Heaton. He all his songs emerge as country and western songs when they when he writes them, but when he records them, they become these different animals. Um, but I love the song. Working with Paul, it seems that he's got such an attention to detail, but a willingness to really work on a song after it's written to to really find the best way of presenting whatever it will be. He's He has a very sharp and keen idea and view of where he wants the record to sound and be like. And it might, it's my job to fulfil that for him and be his mirror. And it's just trying to understand what's in his head. His attention to detail is is incredible. He will say things like... I want an alto sax player on on that. And so I will do the overdub with a, a sax player. And by accident, we will have done tenor sax. And he will be, he'd be absolutely furious because it's not what he had in his head. The difference between an alto and tenor is, is not that big, but enormous as well. And it's it, you've got to have it right. I'm constantly about my wits to get what he wants. I've done uh, probably over these five albums, over 100 tracks with him. And uh, the guy is just, he's the greatest, just the greatest.
drinks and I feel like the opening act That banter they have in the sun is worse cause some have us none Joke told to self is less funny that's just a fact They live through the good times, struggle through bad times, probably be open then closed Put up a new sign, took down the old sign, new problems only arose Disco, probably her fault The death of relationship is She's the first girl I kissed That caused me to cry That gave me real heartache But set my soul free to Claudia Bruken, this time ex-propaganda and the song Only Human from the album The Heart is Strange. And this is another record where you were very heavily involved. Well, so I was one of the co-writers on this. Claudia rang me up three or four years ago and said, because she liked the process of our lyric writing together on the Claudia Bruken solo album, would I write a propaganda album with her? I said, I better listen to a propaganda album to make sure I know what, you, what you're talking about. So I, I did. And they're a bit darker, I suppose, than the normal records. And Stephen Lipson produced this. And the lineup is Stephen Lipson, Claudia and Suzanne. But this record, Only Human, originated in my studio. The bass line I wrote is off Logic Pro X. And so it's, it's a keyboard called the Eighth Nala, which I, I put on most of my records, which is kind of... <laughs> kind of a farty kind of sounding keyboard noise. Actually, it centers things and it, it attracts, you can put an acoustic guitar around it or electric guitar and it it's, it's, makes it sound great. So um, I love this track and we thought it would fly on Radio 2 playlists, but sadly it didn't get played. It sounds like a hit single to me. And Claudia it sings her heart out and the album is brilliant. It, it was there, went, it had a midweek of number two eventually ended up number 11 on CD chart and number seven in the vinyl chart and gave them their first top 10 album. So Claudia and I are meeting tomorrow to start writing the new ex-propaganda album.
to close, we have Petula Clarker again with the John Williams Syndicate and one of your more recent singles, Luminescent. So you continue to work with Petula on more John Williams Syndicate material then? Yes. I spoke to her the other day. She, she was 90 last week and I'm making a new Syndicate album at the moment. I haven't got a song for her yet, but I will do, I hope. I've been working with a girl called Nikki Lathan Thomas, who's just had a, a jazz album out, who's a tremendous singer, which got four-star review in The Guardian and The Scotsman. And a guy called Ben Walker, who played guitar for me on the last Syndicate album and also did some string arrangements for Paul Heaton, was folk guitarist of the year five years ago with Josie N. Clark as a duo. And a guy called Ben Reed and John Moore, who was an artist I signed to Polydor in 88, John Moore Expressway. He was the drummer in Jesus and Mary Chain originally. He's made 13 solo albums. And I'm just working away whilst time flies by in my little studio. And people can uh, find out more about you and your activities on johnowenwilliams.com. That's right. That's my handle and website. And there you, you can you can see records that I've produced, albums I've produced, singles I've produced, a bit about my career. I've been very lucky to have sustained a living in a business, which is a business I, I love working in and continue to work in as long as I can. John, it's been a real pleasure to have you today on The Strange Brew. Thank you so much for your time. Jason, thank you so much for being interested and it's been wonderful to meet you here as well. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.